The first wave of what could be the most unusual election cycle in our nation's history is in the books. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Where to start? So much happened on election night that we're breaking out multiple conversations with Oregonian staff writers. Noel Crombie and I talk about the young progressive attorney backed by John Legend and others who cruised in the Multnomah County District Attorney's race. Molly Harbarger and I chat about Metro's homeless service package passing and what that means. Then Jeff Manning and I break down the Republican primary race for Greg Walden's district. But first, Everton Bailey Jr. on the four city council races and the three that are headed to a runoff this fall. A programming note, we did not discuss the Democratic primary race for Oregon Secretary of State on this podcast. Go to OregonLive.com for the latest on that race. Here's Everton Bailey Jr. This has been uh, quite the city council primary. How <laughs> how are you doing a few days later here? Hey, man, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. Uh, you know, got to. It's, it's the job, right? <laughs> we went in knowing there are four races uh, and 50 plus candidates. And but we still got three races heading into the fall. I, I, I guess uh, let, let's start with the mayor's race. That might make the most sense. Mayor Wheeler was just barely not able to make the 50 percent threshold. Um, and he's going to face Sarah Iannarone in uh, November. Um, just what are your thoughts on that race? It was uh, pretty amazing to watch it hover uh, right around that threshold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a sense, it's it's kind of like uh, these two are always kind of intertwined when it comes election time. Uh, they both ran against each other in 2016, where Wheeler ended up winning the race outright during the primary and uh, Sarah Iannarone finished third. And, you know, they both were among 19 candidates this time where she was able to push it to a runoff. Uh, I think there were a couple of things that played a factor this time around. I think in this race, you know, you had the fact that Wheeler was the incumbent. And so that definitely played a factor. Uh, COVID-19 also absolutely played a factor. I think he was not aggressive with campaigning as he was in 2016. I think that's pretty fair to say. Some of it due to, you know, being the mayor and leading the response mm -hmm. for COVID-19 in the city. But also, I, I think some of it may have been intentional that he didn't campaign as hard, definitely not as much as Sarah Ianna Roan. I mean, she definitely had a very aggressive campaign. And, uh, you know, if you're on social media, she was there too. I, <laughs> I felt like I couldn't escape her on social media. And I felt like a lot of voters couldn't as well. For, for the better, I hope that doesn't sound like it, it was it was it was definitely uh, in your face, and I think that definitely played a factor for her. Uh, we talked to a couple of us, couple of reporters talked to Sarah on election night, and she said one of the factors that helped her this time around that she didn't have in 2016 was the open and accountable election system, which right. is uh, provides a six to one match uh, with taxpayer funds, and she said. This time around, she was able to do more, to reach more people, and uh, and she got a lot of donations, a lot of small donations, and that obviously counted for something in terms of her voter outreach and also uh, just messaging. I think that also played a huge factor in helping push this into a runoff. And 
she really is kind of a grassroots candidate uh, and yeah. wasn't able to in the last few months, uh, despite the social media reach and the uh, the campaign money that you mentioned, wasn't able to be out there knocking on doors, um, making that impression in person, which uh, I'm sure in her mind's eye, that was part of her plan. It was part of her plan. But to be fair, I, I think another factor is uh, with her campaign, as well as a couple of others, uh, Sarah was campaigning from the summer, um, you know, which was a little different from 2016, where she kind of got into the race a little late. Mm -hmm. uh, this time around, she had from the summer to February, March to talk to voters and let them know, hey, I'm running for mayor and uh, also had that experience from 2016 to fall back on. And so while she didn't have, you know, the, the run up to election time to be knocking on doors and meeting with voters, she had been doing that before COVID-19 hit. Do you have a sense of whether she's going to run uh, with the same message, a uh, progressive um, change the city pretty drastically when it comes to how it handles um, police issues, transportation, any number of, of uh, big issues, or is she going to criticize the handling of the pandemic? Or do you have any sense of what her message will be? My impression is that she's going to do uh, the first thing that she mentioned, that she's going to stick with the message that she's had since the beginning, which is that, you know, the leader of the city is leading the city in the wrong direction. And she believes that she is the person who could lead the city in the right direction. Um, and I think that's been her message from the beginning. And I think she's going to she's going to continue to beat that drum until November. Okay, let's shift gears to uh, the late Commissioner Nick Fish's seat. Um, a bit confusing, this race between Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan is not November, it's August. Um, can you handicap this race for us? A pretty interesting diverging styles and career stories. Yes, uh, I think in this case, uh, name recognition may have played a factor here. Uh, you know, uh, this is a race that had 18 candidates and uh, Loretta Smith has had, she had two terms as a Multnomah County Commissioner She'd spent more than two decades working for Senator Ron Wyden. Mm -hmm. I think that definitely played a factor in, in voters' minds as well. She also ran for Portland City Council in 2018, lost to uh, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty in the general election. So I think that played a factor. And Dan Ryan has a long history uh, of, of, of service in the city. Uh, he, he spent uh, the last 11 years as the head of All Hands Raised, which is a educational nonprofit focused on uh, racial equity and education in Multnomah County. Uh, he stepped down as the leader of the group in 2019. He's also been part of the Portland, Portland Public Schools Board. And so he has a lot of time there. And that also uh, built up a lot of a lot of goodwill and, and, uh, and a large base that, that carried him to, uh, to a runoff with, with Loretta Smith in, in August. And Loretta, uh, African-American woman, uh, Dan, um, gay man, um, he has an interesting life story. And also, um, as you chronicled in your reporting, he um, it, it lost a, a immediate family member to addiction. Yes, yes. He's uh, currently living uh, with HIV, HIV positive, has been for for, for decades now. Uh, and also, yeah, as you mentioned, he he uh, he's really passionate about trying to help solve the or curve the homelessness crisis in the city, as well as providing more services for uh, mental health treatment, as well as addiction services. His 
his brother uh, was hit with all three and ended up dying homeless uh, several years ago. Uh, so it definitely hits home to him. And Loretta Smith is also really, uh, really trying to help uh, send the poverty issue in, in the Portland area. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, that she has been working. Uh, she's been working to try and fix for several years, going back to her time as a Multnomah County commissioner. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting race. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, if, if, if Dan wins, he'd be the second openly gay person elected to council. If Loretta Smith wins, she would, she would be the third woman of color on the council and the council would be majority women of color for the first time in the city's history, which is really saying something considering that a woman of color had never been elected the city council until 2018 when mm-hmm. commissioner Joanne Hardesty w- was, uh, was elected to her seat. Well, let's shift to the other uh, contested race, uh, which we uh, had talked about previously in another podcast, Chloe Udaly, Sam Adams and Mingus Maps. Um, and kind of, I think, maybe surprising to some observers, a uh, former mayor, Sam Adams, did not make the runoff. Yeah, you know, it's it's a very interesting race. And ultimately, yeah, he former Mayor Adams, he, he just missed out on on reaching the runoff. Uh, th- almost 2000 votes uh, separated him and, and Mingus Maps. And in, in this race, you, you kind of have uh, someone who voters view as the champion of neighborhood associations in Mingus Maps. That's kind of what he's been part of the things he's been campaigning on. Mm-hmm. And in some people's view, for better or for worse, they kind of view Commissioner U Daly as the anti-neighborhood association candidate. And so, uh, you know, they do differ on a number of issues, but I think that may have been a big factor in, as to why this became a runoff between the two of them. And uh, Chloe, uh, Commissioner U Daly, uh, won office after uh, forcing a runoff in 2016. So she's no stranger to close races. Um, how is she pitching uh, the contrast uh, uh, with uh, Mingus here as, uh, you know, I know we're only a, a day or so out, but what is she saying are the major differences here? Well, she mentioned on uh, her Facebook page yesterday that uh, she felt like her and former mayor, Sam Adams, they, their values align uh, pretty closely, even though their policymaking, their approach to policymaking's are kind of different. Uh, but she described Mingus as very far to the right of her. Um, I mean, even just looking at the contrast, uh, you know, Commissioner U. Daly is a huge uh, renter's rights advocate. Um, and as I mentioned before with Mingus Maps, he wants to preserve the neighborhood association system, but make tweaks in order to make it uh, to, to, to more include people from marginalized, marginalized communities uh, but the neighborhood association system tends to skew more toward homeowners. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a factor right there. And there are a bunch of differences that they have. And that's what I think is going to make this race very interesting to watch, particularly as uh, some restrictions lift. And maybe we'll actually get some more, uh, some more debates, maybe even ones that are um, with people physically present. And I know you mentioned this on a previous conversation, but um, Mingus Maps, if he were to win, would uh, be the first uh, African-American male on city council um, since Charles Jordan, right? Yes, yes. He'd actually be the third African-American male overall. And uh, and again, uh, depending on how things shake out, you could have a 
city council that is majority people of color for the first time history between uh, if uh, let's just say uh, Loretta Smith doesn't win and Mingus does win, then you would have Commissioner Hardesty, Commissioner Carmen Rubio, and then you would have Commissioner Mingus Knapps. Well, that's a good transition to the fourth race, um, which did not need a runoff. Um, uh, Carmen Rubio, uh, as you've reported, we've talked about previously, tons of city hall experience, tons of civic experience in Portland, and uh, she ran away with uh, the race uh, for uh, the seat uh, held by Commissioner Amanda Fritz currently. Yeah, Carmen uh, gained 67% of the vote. You know, the next closest candidates were Candace Avalos, who's an administrator at Portland State University. She got 9% of the vote. And uh, Alicia McCarthy, who's a, a physician who received 6%. Carmen's built up a lot of support through her work in the community over the last uh, decade plus and, uh, and is actively uh, helping families navigate the coronavirus uh, pandemic right now as the head of Latino Network. And so uh, because of all of that, in, in addition to her previous work, uh, working in the offices of former Multnomah County Commissioner Serena Cruz and former Portland Mayor Tom Potter and Commissioner Nick Fish, uh, because of all of that, it really was going to always be an uphill battle for whoever was going up against her. So when you look at the totality of uh, these four races, um, three of them are continuing, but I mean, what's your takeaway? A couple of things. Uh, I think COVID-19 obviously did play a factor. Um, I think it did, it, it may have made it more difficult for candidates to reach people that were not already in their bubble, so to speak. Uh, what I'd been hearing from speaking with many of the candidates is that while you know, um, virtual forms and debates and questionnaires have been helpful. Overall, it's it's much more difficult to have voters come to you than the other way around, uh, which is why a lot of candidates were really disappointed that it just wasn't safe enough for them to knock on doors or participate in physically, you know, physical gathering events that would have allowed them to reach voters who didn't see them on, on social media or hadn't read right. the voter's guide or people who may just base their vote on impressions from meeting candidates in person. I think this overall has been a really big win for the city's open and accountable elections program, uh, the, the public campaign financing system that we mentioned earlier. Um, a lot of the participants enrolled in the program finished in the top half of their races. Uh, Carmen Rubio, who was enrolled, she ended up winning her race. Uh, uh, Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan, who were both in the position two race, they're both enrolled in the program. Commissioner uh, Udaly and Mingus Maps are both enrolled in the program. And then you have Sarah Ianarone, who is also in the program as well in the, in the mayor's race runoff. So uh, all of them are going to continue to re be receiving um, taxpayer funds to help, uh, to help fund their campaign. And I think it is absolutely going to play a factor going forward uh, in future races, future election cycles. These three runoff races, they are going to be very interesting to watch, especially since you don't have uh, fields like in the mayor's race and the position two race where you have to kind of wade through a lot of different candidates. It's going to be a lot more focused and uh, I think it's going to be a lot easier to vote for voters to, to decide who should be on the council uh, come 2021. Yeah, and uh, a reminder to expect a ballot in August, and then expect a, another one. Obviously, the 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 big show in November. And and thanks for making sense of it, and for tracking all these extremely tight races. Um, we appreciate all your coverage. 
Hey, man, that's why we get paid the big bucks. Thanks for having (laughs) me on. And now, Noel Crombie talks about Mike Schmidt's victory in the Multnomah County DA's race. Noel, thanks for taking time to talk today. Thanks for having me. Multnomah County DA's race. Who did voters elect? Tell us a little bit about about, uh, Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt uh, was the reform-minded candidate who ran on a progressive platform. He handily uh, defeated his opponent, uh, Ethan Knight, who was a a longtime assistant U.S. attorney and former Multnomah County uh, deputy district attorney. It was a really resounding win for Schmidt and the message that he campaigned on. So nationally, Noel, the last few years, especially, we've seen these progressive reform DA candidates win. We haven't had a candidate like that here in the Portland area just yet. Is that what Schmidt represented? Yes. I mean, I think that's right. He represented um, real change um, and a, a shift away from electing heir parents into these positions, which is typically what has happened in Oregon district attorney's offices. Mike uh, had the support of a a large cross-section of of interest groups and prominent people in the community who have pushed for reform in the criminal justice system in Oregon. uh, He's been a professional number cruncher for the state. He runs the state's clearinghouse on uh, criminal justice statistics, and he pledged to bring that same approach to, to prosecuting cases in Multnomah County, really a kind of data-driven approach to prosecution, and really a departure from sort of doing business the way things have already always been done. So what does that mean, practically speaking, here in Multnomah County? Well, I just spoke with Mike Schmidt this morning and asked him that very question. And he he said his goal is to have the most transparent DA's office in the country. He pledged to make um, data about the agency's handling of uh, criminal cases public uh, and to do his own sort of in-house analysis of outcomes for these cases. He has said that he's going to prioritize counseling and mental health treatment uh, over incarceration. He had said that he's going to really make the focus um, and the priority violent crimes and then really sort of re-examine how the agency handles misdemeanors, which make up you know, two-thirds of the cases that are prosecuted in the, by the county. And I know that you and um, our colleague, Max Bernstein, have reported on some of the inequities in our criminal justice system, which, again, Oregon is not alone in that regard, but kind of describe what those are and and what he's trying to address with some of these policies. Yeah, I mean, Schmidt has made that a real centerpiece of his campaign. And I think that was a message that resonated with voters. He has argued, uh, you know, that look, the criminal justice system disproportionately impacts people of color, that the state statistics have shown they are more likely to be stopped, arrested, prosecuted for things like drug offenses and receive, and more likely to receive prison, prison time. And he, uh, he has pledged to uh, examine the system that has cr- sort of created those inequities. 
it's hard to overstate what a big deal it is to have an outsider running uh, such a big prosecutor's office. This typically is just not how DA races have gone. They really do tend to go to insider candidates. People have come up through the ranks. And that's not Schmidt. He hasn't worked in that office for a long time. And he really does come uh, into it as sort of a, a person who's going to bring a lot of change. And like you said, he did work in the office at one point, but this was um, back during a longtime uh, DA Mike Shrunk's era, right? That's right. Yeah, and then he went on to work for the legislature uh, as a counsel and um, and then became um, executive director of the state's Criminal Justice Commission, which, as I said, is, is really a kind of a, a clearinghouse for criminal justice statistics. And Mike has been sort of known for these kind of dashboards. You can go onto that agency website and, and you know, sort of look at a whole host of criminal justice statistics. And that's sort of unusual, that kind of level of uh, accessibility of those, those stats. Having those relationships with local law enforcement agencies, I would imagine, is pretty critical. Despite being an outsider, at least he's a known entity to, you know, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office or Portland Police. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note, though, that they did not back Schmidt's candidacy. They went with Ethan Knight, who I I think uh, was a more conventional district attorney candidate. Mike Schmidt did not have the backing of the association that represents prosecutors in the Multnomah County DA's office. He didn't have the support of the Portland Police Union. So I, I think he's a known candidate, but I. You know, we'll see what it means that he didn't have the support of some of uh, those key law enforcement groups. Well, thank you for describing the the, the race, and uh, we'll see how this all shakes out. Thanks for having me. Here's Molly Harbarger talking about the Metro Homeless Services Package. We chatted on election night. Hey, Molly. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? It's going well. Let's jump right into it. I mean, this is a big night for Metro. Um, no other way to, to read it. Uh, what can you tell us about the results on the homeless services measure? Yeah. Um, as of right now, it is winning in both. It's overwhelmingly won in Multnomah County. It's winning in Washington County. Um, it is slightly losing in Clackamas County, but that doesn't appear to matter overall because it's going to carry enough votes to win overall. And so, yeah, it's a big win for Metro. This measure had been kind of thought to be on the November ballot, and it was pushed by Metro to be on the May ballot so that it doesn't go up against a really large transportation package in November. And so I think a lot of people thought that maybe the campaign would be rushed. An opposition group came out and was spending a lot on TV buys and mailers to kind of use coronavirus as a reason to not introduce a new tax. Um, So getting a majority in two counties is still a big win for Metro. What exactly did voters approve tonight? It will be a 1% tax on high-earning individuals or couples. So that's single people who make more than 125000 couples who make more in combined income, and then uh, businesses that generate more than $5 million in revenue each year. And so it's essentially has been pitched as a tax that taxes really high-income earners to pay for the very 
poor people in our community. The, the money will be split between the three counties, um, Washington, Clackamas, and Multnomah, mm-hmm. and it's intended to be used to provide an either new homeless services or shore up existing homeless services. Katrina Holland, who's the executive director for JOIN, which is one of the big homelessness service nonprofits in Portland, said that, you know, earlier this year, um, they were having to turn away homeless families because they just didn't have the resources to help them. And so this is the kind of revenue stream that they have, nonprofits like JOIN and other places, counties have been really looking for to be able to expand what they can do. Um, There's been a big push by local governments for what's called permanent supportive housing, which is you put someone in housing who has historically had a hard time staying in housing or getting there and giving them wraparound services. And so this is going to go towards some of that. It's going to go towards rent assistance. The way that it's written is intended to prioritize communities of color and chronically homeless people. However, there is a lot of wiggle room for what counties will actually put together in their plans for how to use the money that they would get. So what it's actually going to look like in terms of dollars spent remains to be seen. Well, it's you know not happening in a vacuum that uh, we have 14% unemployment, uh, at least here in Oregon. Um, and it looks like voters uh, saw a tax on high-income earners uh, as something they could get behind during this, you know, fraught economic time. Yeah, it it also didn't hurt. I think it definitely helped that uh, nonprofits, local officials um, worked with the business community, especially the Portland Business Alliance, which is the Chamber of Commerce here, Mm -hmm. um, to get kind of that big institutional um, business community buy-in they're plugged into the network of high income earners and businesses and to help bolster the message. So uh, what else jumps out to you about, about this issue or anything else you're tracking tonight that you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I think that uh, in the last few weeks before the election, there was a lot more spending on the part of the supporting campaign, the campaign promoting the measure. Um, So it did appear that they were a little bit nervous. Um, I think a lot of people uh, pointed out that they got some unusual mailers from the campaign. One was like a Donald Trump pointing saying he wanted to um, he doesn't want you to vote in mail in elections. And it just had a very small thing saying it was from um, the homeless services campaign. But at the same time, I think a lot of people who are running the campaign and pushed for this measure knew that it was, as you said, the number one priority for most people in the region. Molly Harberger, thank you so much for um, sharing your expertise and analysis on on the Metro Homeless Services uh, measure. And I'm sure you'll be tracking this as as it's implemented and developed going, going forward. Thanks, Andrew. And now Jeff Manning talks about Cliff Bence's big win in the Republican primary for the second congressional district. The Democratic side of the ledger had not been settled at the time we recorded this podcast on election night. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Jeff. Happy election night to you. I'm feeling the patriotism. I don't know about you. (laughs) You wrote about what would, I think, in normal times be maybe the most interesting race. It's not every day that a uh, congressman uh, who's been there for more than 20 years and is one of the most powerful Republicans in the House, Greg Walden, walks away. 
Um, and his seat is contested with a very deep and interesting group of candidates. And uh, Cliff Bentz, who maybe isn't the biggest name in the general population, came away with it. This is a guy who's, who's very well known in Salem and, and also in his district. Yeah, and the that district is often considered more part of the Boise Metroplex than it is considered part of Oregon. Um, there were folks in Medford and Bend who thought that Bend's couldn't do it because his appeal was too narrow and his geography, his geographical base was too distant from uh, the true power centers of the district. I mean, it was a, it was a big upset, and uh, you know, I don't know what this means for Newt Bueller's political future. Yeah, Newt Bueller, obviously a physician from Bend who um, ran for governor, was a state lawmaker as well. Uh, a lot of folks thought he might have the inside edge, um, but uh, he obviously uh, couldn't overtake Bentz. And it really wasn't even close. Bentz went out to an early lead, uh, pretty substantial, and I thought, well, heck, I guess that must be all of the... Uh, Malheur County voters, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it, he just he he was above thirty percent most of the night. It's never over until it's over. But uh, folks wiser than me called this race a half an hour ago. Now this is um, you mentioned that the power centers of this district. I'm a Medford native. Uh, that's one of the power centers of this district. So is Bend. Uh, Congressman Walden's from Hood River, and then we're talking uh, about Ontario, which is you know almost 400 miles away from Hood River. Uh, this is one of the largest congressional districts in the country by uh, by size. Um, a pretty fascinating place. Uh, yeah, from the uh, from the Rogue Valley to the Treasure Valley, it's, uh, <laughs> it's really uh, uh, to the Hood River Valley. Uh, it's, uh, it's a really interesting place, really di- increasingly politically diverse, you know, look for some sort of gerrymandering effort to go on to get Bend and Hood River out of that district. They're out of step politically with the rest of it. But anyway, in terms of tonight's race, man, Ben's uh, was really surprised me. He is not a big glamour guy. Uh, he's no. just, he's got a lot, he gets a lot of credit for being a hard worker and a smart guy in Salem. But yeah, against uh, the firepower and big media personality of Bueller, uh, I didn't think he had a shot. And then there's uh, two other names in this race, obviously, Jason Atkinson. People who have been around paying attention to Oregon political circles might remember him as, you know, at one point, the young rising star in the Republican Party. Um, He ran for governor once, uh, thought about doing it a second time, uh, shot himself in the lake accidentally. back uh, in 2008. And um, in this race, he was running uh, pretty hard to the right, it seemed. Yeah, it was, he did. Uh, I remember when he was touting his in- environmental work uh, in the Klamath Basin and uh, trying to widen his base the other way. And uh, I really admired him. And I thought he was a, uh, he was a real force to be reckoned with uh, in Oregon politics. And uh uh, this was a big comeback for him after several years out of the legislature, and uh, he ran a strong third. Uh, he did better than I thought he would do, but because he raised just a fraction of the money. You know, now that we talk about this, I mean, Congressman Walden was also a 
power broker in, in the state politics as well. Um, and he inherited from another power broker in, in Salem politics as well. And, and now Cliff Benz, uh, kind of continues the trend of, uh, you know, rising through the ranks, uh, representing your, your community in Salem and then, uh, having a chance at, at a, a congressional seat. Benz is like a guy, a good good student in the front row of the class who goes and fights by the rules and wins. Then there was Jimmy Crumpacker, who's like the slouching against the back wall, who uh, had never run for office before. Questions about whether he even lived in the district. Right. Uh, nevertheless, he ran. He raised a lot of money, uh, eight hundred thousand dollars plus. Uh, much of it from Oregon Right to Life, which went for him rather than Atkinson, which I know was a huge blow. A lot of people going in thought Crumbecker might win, mainly because he just, he was the Trump guy. He undying loyalty to Trump. And, uh, you know, this year he thought that was enough. And uh, it's interesting that it wasn't. Well, I think it, it shows, uh, like, like we've mentioned a few times, Cliff Bentz, um, you know, people, politics are local and Bentz uh, working in the legislature um, kind of on the front lines of that urban rural divide for a long time. And he's been very outspoken about standing up for issues like water rights um, and things of that nature that affect his district um, and uh, the communities out in eastern Oregon. Things are so polarized now that everyone was looking for something to hold against Ben's and it was his support of the transportation package of Kate Brown's transportation package. And uh, they were trying to tar him with the brush of being Kate Brown's partner in crime, you know, and uh, it didn't work, obviously. It was uh, it was sort of refreshing to see the guy who's not real glamorous, but just a really hard worker and smart uh, carry the day. And uh, talking about transportation, he was he was one of the state lawmakers, as you know, who who felt particularly burned uh, by the Columbia River crossing uh, falling apart because he was uh, at that table as well. This is a guy who who's been around uh, trying to negotiate big deals. And and negotiate across the table, which is, you know, wow, how rare is that these days? Uh, It's going to be really interesting. I think he's going to. I talked to a lot of people in the last couple of days, a lot of Republican activists who uh, they think Benz will be a really effective office holder. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Beat Check with the Oregonian. There was so much news this week, we had to bring you two bonus episodes. Check out Mike Rogaway's interview with Emily Powell, the CEO of Powell's Books, if you missed it. We will be back on Monday with a new regular episode, a conversation with investigative reporter Noel Crombie. Until next time.